0: Genesis three fourteen through 24, I'll pray for us. I ask that God would help. Our Father and God, we come before you, and as we look at our history, we pray, Lord, that it would explain our present and point us toward our future. That we would understand our world and know you better because of our time together this morning, and that we would praise your name in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit. Help us in this room, help uh, those in Children's Church, help all of us to worship and praise you, for you are worthy. Amen. Do you have a favorite book title? This might not be anything you've ever thought about before. Not a favorite book, necessarily, but just a favorite book title. There's all sorts of books that have great book titles. In fact, maybe that's a requirement for being a classic. You have to have a really good title like Crime and Punishment. It's a great title. Uh, I I like 100 Years of Solitude. That's an evocative title. A Tale of Two Cities. Just rolls off the tongue. The Sun Also Rises. Honestly, I've never read it. I have no idea what it's about. I just like that title. The Sun Also Rises. That means something. Jurassic Park. No joke. That's a great title for a book. Tells you what you need to know right off the bat. There's a book by a theologian named Albus Plantinga on on the doctrine of sin, and the title for his book is Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It's one of my favorite book titles. Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Just in that title, it tells you so much about our world, who we are, what's gone wrong, that something is not right. It should be some way, but it isn't. I'm sure that's how the Israelites felt as they were wandering in the desert. Remember the context in which the book of Genesis and the whole Torah was written. It was written, given by God to Moses for the Israelites. And what was their experience? They had been delivered, saved out of captivity in Egypt, heading towards the promised land. But man, was it taking a long time getting there. It was stretching their faith as they went through challenges and trials, wondering, are they going to have enough to eat? Taking so long to get where they were finally going to go, to this land of milk and honey where they would have peace and rest, taking so long to get there, they started to wonder whether they were going to get there at all. And all the trials, they started to think, this is going to be the death of us. We were better off back in Egypt. It's getting so bad out here. And they probably thought to themselves many times, this is is not the way it's supposed to be. It should be better. And in that context, we have the Torah and the book of Genesis, and Genesis which explains why things are the way they are. Why is it? That you don't live in perfection? Why is it that you struggle? Why are there so many trials? Why does this life seem so hard? And these verses in particular, verses 14 through 24, have a lot of answers to those questions. Why are things the way they are? They're not the way they're supposed to be. Really what verses 14 through 24 tell us is we're not in paradise, but there's hope. If I could sum it up anyway, I think that would be the main message from these verses. We're not in paradise, but there's hope. And actually brings to mind another book titled, Paradise Lost. I'll show you what I mean. This text, verses 14 through 24, tells us what happened and how it's going to get fixed. Verses in verses 14 and 15, we see that spiritual life is cursed. Specifically, God put a, a curse on the serpent, but in that and because of that, spiritual life is cursed. We want to know why things are the way they are, or why are things not the way they're supposed to be. And what happened? Well, spiritual life is cursed. We see that verse 14: 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, "Because you have done this." Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Of course, we know the story in the background. We know that God put Adam and Eve in the garden, and gave all of creation to Adam and Eve and every tree to eat, do this and you will live. Create wonderful things out of creation. Just don't eat of one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, what happens? The serpent comes along. The great adversary, Satan, speaking through the serpent. Deceives and tempts Adam and Eve and they eat the fruit of the tree. and They rebel against God. The serpent is responsible for their deception, so the serpent is now cursed. The text says, cursed above all livestock. Now, I'm going to confess something to you. I looked at this text and kind of always thought that maybe what was going on here was the serpent, like, used to have limbs and could walk, or maybe walked upright or something, and then. Because of this curse, God took away the limbs of the serpent and now it crawls on its belly. Maybe this is explaining how snakes came to be here. I kind of always thought that this was a physical thing that was going on in this curse. And recently in our small groups we've been speculating, maybe this is about dragons. Right, we've just been having fun with this. Maybe, the, you know, all across the world, they, they're order, they're, the dragon mythology kind of pervades. And no matter what part of the world you're in, there's some type of dragon mythology that's there. Though well, maybe this is a dragon, and its wings were clipped, and now it's a serpent. That, you know, we have just having fun with this. But I'm pretty convinced what's going on here is, is not actually any type of physical curse upon a serpent. This is not about limb removal. This isn't saying, actually, that you used to walk or used to fly and now you're going to crawl. All this is saying, what God is saying is to the serpent, you're going to continue, keep crawling on your belly and eating dust. It's not that there was a change in the serpent's physiology. It's you, serpent, will live with this existence of eating dust. And that is a metaphor For defeat and humiliation, Prophet Isaiah actually uses it elsewhere in Scripture. It's used, eating dust, crawling on the ground, as a metaphor for being defeated and humbled. There's a curse on the serpent. We'll be defeated. Really, this is not about snakes. It's about the one behind the serpent. And it sets up an ongoing struggle between the offspring of the serpent and offspring of the woman. Now again, clearly this is not just about snakes because this is not telling us that you know forever and ever humans and snakes are just going to be having a battle even though most of us hate snakes. We're like Indiana Jones. We don't like snakes, right? Most of us are in that camp. But this is not about a clash between literal, physical snakes and humans. Nor is this about actually a clash between Satan's demonic offspring necessarily in humans because Satan doesn't create, I don't think Satan has children. What this specifically says, and there's going to be enmity enmity or strife between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman is that there are going to be two lines in all of humanity. And all of humanity is going to exist in two camps, either the offspring of the serpent or the offspring of the woman. All of people will be descended from one of two origins. Be one of two family lines. Either an offspring of the serpent or offspring of the woman. And there is going to be clash and tension and struggle in all of it. What this is about is about spiritual struggle with spiritual forces behind it and influencing. That's why we get to places like Ephesians 6, and we hear Paul tell us that our fight is not really against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual forces that have influenced people. There's a spiritual struggle, and our spiritual lives are under attack. It explains why people fall into evil and wicked spirituality. explains why people worship false gods, give religious devotion to sinfulness. explains why some seem so deceived and so lost, believing things that are obviously and plainly wrong and sinful, and justifying them as moral and right. It's why there's a struggle in spirituality. It's why spirituality is hard and not easy. You want to know why your prayer life is difficult. Because of sin, because the spiritual life is cursed, because there's tension in spiritual life. It explains the spiritual darkness we see in the world. It's not hard to look around us and see something is not right in religion, in our spiritual world, in our in the supernatural realm that we participate in. There's fallenness and wickedness and evil. I mean, do you ever wonder why people do such horribly wicked evil things in the name of Spirituality? Why were there religions that practiced child sacrifice? Why is spiritual life imperfect? Intention? Because spiritual life is cursed. And that tension, that struggle started way back in the beginning. Not only is spiritual life cursed, but family life is cursed. We see that with the curse upon the woman. She was culpable in being deceived by the serpent and rebelling against God by eating the fruit. So the curse falls on her. Family life is cursed. Look at verse 16. God moves on from cursing the serpent to cursing the woman. The woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Here, the woman's particular domain of childbearing is cursed. There are a number of things I remember about my wife and I's experience when we had our first child. One of the things I'll never forget is when we first got to the hospital there in Portland, Oregon, and we were being ushered by a very kind and helpful nurse to our room, and as we were going into our our suite, uh, we could hear down the hall a woman screaming at the top of her lungs in the pain that she was in, and I looked to Maggie, and we looked at each other and said, here's what you're in for. Now, if you know my wife, you know that she was prepared for that and went through that as well as any woman who's ever walked this earth. I was spooked. (laughs) I was afraid, I think, more than she was. But it was an instant reminder that this whole process is not going to be easy. And in fact, this isn't just about delivery. The word there in verse 16 for childbearing, that first word, is from a Hebrew noun for conception, conceiving. So this isn't just about having painful deliveries. What this is saying is that at the very beginning, the whole process of conceiving and having kids, it's all going to be a struggle. There will be pain, worry, anxiety, trial, and just having kids. We may have birthing plans and try to have perfect experiences and put all things under control in some ways. It's a desire to get back <laughs> to the way it should be. But the reality is, is childbearing will be imperfect. I can speak from some personal experience in that. As many of you can. Why does it go wrong sometimes? You could talk to my father, who's a retired, what's uh, called perinatologist, high risk pregnancy doctor, maternal field medicine. That's why he did all his life as a doctor treating. Mothers and babies in the womb where there was high risk. So he spent his life trying to save and providing a lot of care and keeping babies and mothers alive, and also spent a lot of his life giving hard news to people that your baby's not going to make it. It's under a curse. That extends to child raising. Child raising won't be perfect. In fact, the whole family life won't be perfect. Look at the other component of this curse upon the woman. There will be tension in the very relationship of male and female. The curse on the woman says that her desire will be for her husband. What does that mean? Does that mean... That it is a curse that a woman would want to be with her husband, that her desires for her husband. It's not what that means. All you have to do is go to a few verses later, look over, and we're going to get here next week, but Genesis 4 7, the very next chapter. It's an interesting verse that explains what's going on here. In Genesis 4 7, how is the same phrase used here? God warns Cain if you do not do what is right, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. It's the exact same Hebrew phrase. Sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. In other words, sin's desire for you is to overtake you, to take over. Sin desires to take over. This is what that phrase means. So now, import that back into Genesis 3. Well, what does this mean here in Genesis 3? Eve, the woman, your desire will be to take over your husband. Your desire will be for him, opposed him. You'll want to take over. And how's that going to go? He's going to rule over you. And when the text says rule over, it doesn't just mean exercise leadership. What it means is he'll use his God-given leadership in a way that'll be bad for you. It'll be harsh. There will be this stress, this tension between the woman and her husband. What is supposed to be godly, loving leadership laying down its life for the other and then a loving follower who comes alongside and helps, and them working together in partnership, now what's going to happen is you're going to want to take over, you're going to want to treat harshly and oppress, and the whole thing's going to be cursed. So here is my encouragement to young people looking to get married. This would be a great wedding text. Here you go. This marriage that you're entering into, it's cursed. Right from the start. In, in premarital counseling, you do deal with something called idealistic distortion which is a fancy phrase for saying it's not going to be as good as you think. Or, maybe a better way to say it, it's going to be different than you think. Because marriage is wonderful. It's one of God's greatest gifts. And it's under a curse. So guess what you and your spouse are going to do? You're going to fight. And you're going to be imperfect. Imperfect. And you're going to have to deal with that. As our premarital counselor told us, you're going to have to deal with each other's crazy. You all have some. And your success in marriage will depend on how well you deal with each other's crazy or how well do you forgive one another in sin. Because this union is going to be imperfect. There's no such thing as a perfect spouse. You won't find one by trading them out for another either. It's all cursed. I think some men have figured that out and said, well, spiritual life is cursed, so there goes church. Family life is cursed, so that's not going to work out. So maybe if I pour myself into work, if I just devote all my time and energy there, then I'll have peace. If I just kind of shut out everything else around me and just pour myself into uh, the labor of my hands and there I'll have peace and rest. Well, I've got bad news for you. As verses 17 through 19 tells us, there's a curse upon work life. Work life is cursed as well. Work life is cursed. There's a curse upon our working the ground. Verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. In Genesis 2, man was given the command, work and keep the garden as an act of worship to God. You will take all creation and work it and bring fruitfulness out of it. And now that... Mandate is cursed. Your work life you'll be able to get fruit out of it, but it's gonna come with a lot of thorns and thistles. The the ground you work is gonna fight back. So this has great explanatory power. Why do we see environmental and natural disasters, trains derailing, oil spilling? It's not just incompetent leadership. It's also because the very endeavor of work is cursed. Explains the frustration we experience in our work. Bosses who don't appreciate us. Unending meetings. Tech that never seems to do what you want it to. The never-ending reply all threads. Company is saying they have record profits and you don't get a raise. The person who keeps eating your food in the fridge. The one in the cubicle next to you who always uses speakerphone. All those things. Result of the curse. Work and you can say, well, that's why I retired. Left that old curse behind. But if you read the text, you'll notice it follows. You may retire from paid work, but you can't retire from the curse itself. Verse 19 says, By the sweat of your brow you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Which means you won't escape this until death. So your retirement years, they will not be paradise either. Might be better. I hope they're better. But you're still going to experience frustration And whatever work you do, it will not be perfect. And there's something so tragic about this. What did Adam and Eve think was going to happen? What were they told was going to happen? You're going to be like God. Eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God. Instead, what are they like? Dust. And you're just going to return to the ground. Death now reigns in humanity, and that's the last aspect of the curse. Elaborated on verses 20 through 24, spiritual life is cursed, family life is cursed, work life is cursed, and just physical life is cursed, just life itself cursed. And here in verses 20 through 24, God doesn't pronounce a curse like he does in the first three sections, but he enacts one. He cuts off Adam and Eve from life in the garden, banishing them from paradise. Death reigns as physical life is cursed in verse 20 through 24. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Because of their sin and rebellion, there's now a problem in paradise. Men and women have been corrupted by the knowledge of good and evil. As a problem in a place that 's supposed to be perfect it 's been found that there are some animals that actually develop a taste for a human. they develop a taste for eating humans and then start eating them as a pattern so according to uh, I think a Discovery Channel article about a decade back, there is a leopard in Nepal ate one human and then started eating more and more and the theory is that uh, Human blood has a lot more salt in it than other animals, and certain predators, particularly cats, not house cats, large cats, if, if your house cat was bigger, it would do this too, but it can't, so it doesn't. Um, but in large predator cats, if, in some of them, if they happen to get a taste for human blood, I mean, some of them might... Start eating more, and then what has to happen to that animal? It's got to be put down. Well, the same principle applies in the garden. Once humanity got a taste for evil, there would just be more and more and more sin. If that was allowed, paradise would be corrupted. We'd no longer have paradise. Paradise is no longer be a place of perfection, be a place of sin and stain. So the stain had to be removed. So God expels the stain from paradise. God set cherubim over the east side of the garden. When you think of cherubim, some of you might think of like the cute baby fluffy angels, little wings. That's not the image you should have here with cherubim. In a lot of ancient Near Eastern cultures, cherubim were like sphinx-like creatures, large wings, powerful angels. Strong, guarding the entrance to the garden with the flaming sword. Because the garden was closed, no human would be able to eat from the tree of life. All humans banished to death. Why do we die? Why is death an inevitability for all of us? Why do we experience the pain? Of losing people we love because we've been banished from paradise. This is humanity's fundamental problem. At the root of it all, this is our problem. We have been removed. From the presence of God, which brings life. Behind all of it, it's why sin is a problem, because this is the effect of sin. It's what sin does. It removes us from God's presence where life is. And what happened here in Genesis 3 is that humanity was removed from God's presence. We were kicked out of the temple said it before, the garden was the first temple. Just like the temple, the garden was a holy place. Just like the temple, the garden was filled with gold, as we read. Just like the temple, the garden's entrance faced the east. Just like the temple, the garden was overseen by cherubim. There cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, the temple. And just like the temple, the garden was filled with the presence of God. That is where life is, is where Life was found was being in God's presence in perfect relationship with Him, but humanity was removed from the garden. The great hope and promise of the Old Testament from God is that someday we'd be back in God's presence. If you pay attention to your Old Testament, especially reading prophetic books, sometimes you'll hear a phrase from God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that phrase is a promise and a hope that one day we'll be reunited. The paradise will be restored. But as it stands now, the curse is spread in every area of life. Our spiritual life, family life, work life, physical life, all of it is cursed, so there is no escaping it. It's why you don't have paradise in your life. It's why life is hard. You won't find peace by changing things up. You can find better jobs. You can find better contexts and situations. But there's nothing you can do to create paradise in your life. It won't come from a new job, won't come from a new home, won't come from a new car, won't come from a new spouse, won't come from a new church. You may find a church that better suits you. But as you do know, the curse remains. You will never find paradise on earth because paradise is only found in the pure and perfect presence of God. And we've been removed from that presence as a result of sin. And here's something else you need to know. Something I overlooked. All throughout, who is responsible for this curse? This is important. For the curses that are laid out in the serpent. Woman, man, the penalty of death. Who's responsible for all this? You could say, well, the serpent is responsible because the serpent deceived Adam and Eve. and You'd be right. And you could say Adam and Eve are responsible because they're the ones who sinned and rebelled. And you'd be right. They're responsible for the curse. But who's ultimately responsible for it? Who's the one that enacts it? It is God himself. God himself is the one who pronounces the judgment of the curse. He is the one responsible over it. He is the one who enacts it. So as you think, well, this world is cursed all the way around, and it's cursed by God himself, what are we to do? say, so Aaron, this is a bummer of a sermon. We're not in paradise by God's design and ordination. But there's hope. Where's the hope? There's hope in the fact that God is the one who ordained the curse, which means he can lift it if he so chose. There's hope because actually the curse isn't some ethereal power out there that can't be helped and can't be dealt with. God himself is powerless to stop. The curse is under his control. The curse is under his lordship. The question is, is God the kind of God who would reverse his curse and remove it? What kind of God is He? Is He a kind of God who will never go back on His judgment? Who will never forgive? Who will never relinquish in His wrath? Or is He the kind of God who will give grace? Do we have evidences here, even in the text, that there's hope and grace for us. Let's walk back through it much more quickly in reverse and see if this curse can be reversed. Look back at verse 22. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat, and live forever. There is God's grace. Why? He wasn't going to let his people live in sin forever. Death, physical death, release from sin, is an act of God's grace. He would not let his people live in the garden in sin forever. He gave death as a means of grace. Sin won't go on forever. It won't be eternal. Bruce Walkie says it well. Death is both a judgment and a release. Here's second evidence of God's grace. Verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. What happened last week when they first fell into sin? They became ashamed, so they tried to clothe themselves and fig leaves. What does God do? Say, no, that's not sufficient. You can't cover yourselves. You can't take care of your own shame. Allow me. And an animal is sacrificed for the covering of the shame of the people. Huh. He takes covers over their shame. Then in verse 20, it says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Eve means life or life giver. It shows that Adam believed that life was going to come through this woman. She would be the mother of all living people. Not the mother of the dead, the mother of the living. Why did Adam believe that Eve was going to be the mother of all the living? What gave him that faith? Well, it's because of what God says in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is a huge verse in your Bible. If you don't have it underlined, highlighted already, you need to know Genesis 3.15. It has been called the proto the first gospel. It's the first message of good news in your scripture, and it happens immediately after sin. God comes and he gives good news, an announcement that the curse will be reversed, that things will be right. Uh, the other day in my home, my son was talking about dragons, which is not unusual about 30% of all conversation and all activity is dragon-related. And he was saying something about it. You need the spirit to defeat the dragon. I thought, huh, there's some, there might be some theological work going on. Here he's getting something to Christianity. And it turns out he was just referring to Ray and the Last Dragon. It was a Disney movie he was talking about. But why did I think there was something theologically related? Well... The defeat of the dragon, the defeat of the serpent, is the first gospel, the proto-evangelium. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This verse talks about the descendants. The descendants, the offspring of the serpent and the woman being at war with one another. But then it turns to one descendant in particular, singular, he. One of these descendants, one person, one he, will crush the serpent. And who is this one? Who is this one serpent crusher that has been promised from the beginning? We know who it is. It is the man Christ Jesus. When did Jesus crush the head of the serpent? If this is the first gospel, if this is the first announcement of one who would come and defeat the serpent on our behalf, when did Jesus do it? Well, he did it when he defeated Satan in the temptation. when Satan tried to tempt him. And Jesus would not be tempted, but stood firm, and rejected Satan and refused, there he defeated Satan. And Jesus defeated Satan in his life and ministry as he went along doing miracles and casting out demons and showing he is God over Satan himself. And even the Satans believe in him, but they shudder and they have to do his bidding because Jesus is Lord over Satan and demons. And Jesus defeated Satan when he was on the cross paying for the sins of the world. And Jesus defeated Satan when he was buried and rose from the grave and ascended on high and sat down and rule and reign as Lord over all creation, including Satan himself. There he defeated the serpent. And Jesus will return one day and cast out that serpent, not just away from paradise, but into a lake of fire, dead forever, defeating the serpent. Jesus is the one promised here who will defeat the serpent. He may have his bruise struck, or his heel bruised or struck. He'll crush the serpent's head. And one other thought there is Jesus' heel was struck, so to speak, on the cross. He has a conversation with somebody, he makes a promise. There's a couple of people next to him, but one in particular. He was a thief, somebody cursed. And what does Jesus promise to that man? When that thief believes in him, Jesus says to him, Today you'll be with me in paradise. The gates that were closed are now open wide, the door is no longer locked. We can have presence with God once again and will in Jesus Christ. How did that happen? Not through anything that thief did. All that he had to do was believe in Jesus Christ, the serpent crusher, and paradise was open to. Him. That is our hope. We're not in paradise, but there's hope, a sure, solid hope, in Jesus Christ. One last question, very briefly. Kind of just with curiosity of mind for you, something you think about. As you read through Genesis 3, does that explain what you see in the world? Does this have what I'll call explanatory power? The curses of Genesis 3... The hope in Genesis 3. Does that fit with what you see in the world? I think it does. As I look out in the world and as I look within my own self, something's gone wrong. How did it go wrong? Can it be fixed? I look at Genesis 3 and I think we have the answers. And I propose to you that any theology, any worldview, any framework for how you see the world has to deal with these realities that things are not right. But they're also not hopeless. They can be fixed. They can be redeemed. We don't have the power to do it. We've proven over thousands of years we have no power to fix it but there's one who can and who has in Jesus Christ. We've got the answers, people. Don't be ashamed of the truth given to you in God's word that is the only explanation for what is going on in our world and for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Father and God, we thank you for good news and the good news we have. In the midst of curse, there's blessing and there's hope and there's promise and that wins out in the end. We have hope in Jesus Christ, the serpent crusher, the only one who can fix it and the one who has fixed it and will make all things right again. Our hope is in him, Lord. Though uh, this world, as we say, may be filled with devils, filled with things gone wrong. Everything is right and will be made right in Jesus Christ. And our hope and faith is in him. Amen.